Hey everybody, thank you for checking out the Broke Down Podcast. My name is Jonathan, I am your host, and this is episode 100. The Broke Down Podcast is a founding community podcast of Osiris Media. Osiris Media is making podcasts about the things that you love. Currently, season two of Undermine is underway. Season two examines the culture around fish, so check that out at osirispod.com. So this is episode 100. I do want to thank all of you, everyone who's listened, engaged with me on the social media or via email about the show. If it weren't for you folks, I probably wouldn't keep doing this. I mean, I probably would for a while, but at some point I'd look at the numbers and stop, I guess. Um, I'm not really doing this for stats. I'm not doing it for advertising dollars, uh, which is good. Uh, I'm doing this because I enjoy it. I think some of you do too. So thank you. For this episode, I did think about a variety of ways to celebrate or mark the moment, but honestly, they all sounded silly or a bit too much of self-congratulations and not a, not enough getting on with the thing. So uh, let's just do that. This episode's guest is Ethan Miller of Howlin' Rain. Howlin' Rain has been putting out album after album of great material with Miller as the driving creative core. They have a new album out this week, October 8th entitled The Dharma Wheel. You can find it at howlinrain.bandcamp.com. That's howlin', not howling. Just like truckin'. You guys get that, right? Truckin'. All right, so uh, Ethan and I cover a lot of ground on Howlin' Rain, as well as his background, his other groups, and of course, Grateful Dead. I think you'll dig this. But before I spin the conversation up for you, I'll remind you that I am on Twitter and Instagram at BrokedownPod. The blog with the show notes and all of that stuff and the links to the things and the places and the whatever is at brokedownpodcast.blogspot.com. You can also find a link to the Redbubble site where uh, you can get that fancy Broke Down Pod t-shirt or mug or whatever with our awesome logo that was designed by my good friend Sean. He also did the cover for my album and is just a great dude, so I want to thank him here right, right now. Thank you, Sean. All right, so... Here's my chat with Ethan Miller. Be sure to stick around after for some tunes. Thanks for sitting down to talk with me. I don't know if you're familiar with the show at all. Um, it's started as a Grateful Dead podcast, but I spend you know, most of my episodes talking to uh, musicians and whatnot about their music. Uh, I think the idea is to kind of cast a new perspective on Grateful Dead or things that people who like the Grateful Dead should like because I like it I don't know yeah <laughs> so we we can talk about some dead stuff too as well but uh you know there's a there's a lot here to cover um, yeah however you want to play it man it's cool by me I'll, I'll just free flow with you cool I did um I did listen to I I read your interview with uh James with uh James Toth and then uh, the one you did with Nick Mitchell, both both of those guys, good guys, and kind of stepped on some of the questions I want to ask you. So this is great, actually, because it gives me a little advance. <laughs> um, so, I, I, you know, where I usually like to start is just to ask about your background. I'm, I, I know a little bit. You're from Northern California. Yeah. Um, and uh, you started playing when you were, uh, but when did you start playing music uh i probably started you know playing music i took piano lessons when i was probably about like you know eight or nine or something like that in that zone you know 
Um, and I didn't become like an expert classical pianist. You know, I was working the, the, the big thing, you know, I wasn't incredibly, incredibly disciplined. You know, I do my practices each day, often reluctantly. But the one thing that was kind of a blessing through all that was that, um, you know, it got me going on music. So I got the feel of how to make music. And I got a little bit of the parameter of, you know, how discipline will give you rewards. But it was a Suzuki method of, of uh, piano playing and learning music. So instead of reading and, you know, starting with a really strict crit, uh, theory, um, it started by ear. So mm. you, you would learn music by ear first and then apply it, the Suzuki method. Then later you can learn to read music. But the first thing they want you to do was to, to have an ear for this stuff, know how to do it. And I think later in life, it gave me a lot of prompting and instinctually I would, you know, go in for improv you know improv music because the first way that i had of dealing with music was um with my ears rather than with my eyes and my knowledge of you know mathematics and musical language and stuff right cool um i picked up guitar later like a teenager or something like that or when did you probably about 12 you know okay. i i was had graduated from junior high which was like eighth grade going into starting high school in ninth grade. And in that summer between before high school, I got accepted to this California state summer school for the arts. That was, uh, they held down in Oakland in mills college. Okay. And, and they would have all, it, it just was like a, maybe a one month or five week, you know, thing where students, high school students, really me and two girls from my school that I was friends with were the youngest people in the whole thing i think most most of the students it seemed like were probably either seniors or, or most of them it seemed like they'd already graduated as seniors and were going on to college so um it was you know first time away from home for that long living in the dorms with all these older kids you know i hadn't hit high school yet i was an only child and most of my peers if not all my peers were my age so we all knew junior high stuff you know yeah um here comes, you know, this Mills art school with kids from all over the United States. Some of these people are basically adults already and they knew everything, you know what I mean? <laughs> they knew music, art, you know, and this, this uh, California state summer school for the arts was very high powered. I mean, they would have famous, famous writers come in for the writers workshops. Oh, you know, at, at lunchtime today, you can go in and, and watch the Kronos Quartet perform. We're bringing them in as part of this. I mean, so this was a very high powered little um, summer arts program. You're immersed with, you know, famous and accomplished teachers and, and guest lecturers and stuff. Um, so that was cool on that end. But also because, you know, I was um, taken into, you know, uh, older kids dorms and shy. Hey, you know, have you ever heard the Velvet Underground before? Yeah. You know, because into the thing lights go off candle gets lit hit play on the thing and mind blown 15 minutes later heroin comes to a climax and you're like <laughs> oh shit we're not in kansas anymore you know this is you know i'm, I'm heading home and throwing out my you know millie vanilli tapes or whatever it's been going on here <laughs> you know wow yeah um i mean that's that had to be like massively eye-opening and and quite a few ways it, it 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 was. I mean, in one in one afternoon, yeah. Like I said, I went from like, okay, I've heard, you know, I know Poison, I know Guns and Roses, I know what's on MTV, you right. know, I knew a few things I could then, you know, the Beatles and Jefferson Airplane, what I can get for my parents' collection. 
but I didn't have that older influence yet. And growing up in the Lost Coast, way up here, lost in the Redwoods, pre-internet, um, you know, you had what you got from people, you know, right. and the radio TV. So, you know, within 40 minutes of being in one of these older kids' rooms, I'd all of a sudden, you know, heard the first Velvet Underground record, heard a Gigi out, knew that a person like Gigi Allen existed in in music, had been shown part of the movie Hated or something, you know. Wow. Um, you know, just, you know, all, all the whole spectrum starts to open up. Well, have you heard this? No. Well, you haven't heard anything yet, you know. And, you know, 45 minutes later, you're like, okay, okay, you know, hang on here. The whole the whole world just got a lot bigger. This is, you know, it's going right. to take us. So I was I was drinking that stuff in, you know, and when I went home, I was mostly back with my age group again. Um, but I went and lived in England for a year and went to high school there. And because of the small town that I lived in up here, we would have local shows, small shows, many of which were totally amazing. You know, whatever. Fugazi at the Armory, Green Day at a 40 capacity punk club, you know, um, really cool stuff, but not that bigger you know, like when Nirvana came out and they're playing big shows, that's nothing that we had up here and it was hard to get to the city. So when I went to England for the year, every town's got a big rock nightclub and I just saw, you know, just started going to concerts like crazy, seeing live music, seeing all kinds of crazy stuff from stadium level to, you know, to uh, all the, you know, grunge stuff that was breaking through. And, um, you know, between that and then getting home and, and um, getting into bands with older kids and stuff who were adults, they were mid twenties by then or something. And they had the info that that kind of completed my, my gateway to, uh, you know, it's all about people that know giving you information you know, pre pre-internet, right. <laughs> you know? And uh, what, what kind of music were your first bands? Um, they were mostly like, you know, a little more on the punk edge. What they really sounded like was the type of punk rock that like the replacements do, you know, okay. or the or the New York Dolls, you know, where it's like really rock and roll based, um, you know, punk rock. I was not a hardcore punk, you know, it's not straight edge music or, you know, really fearsome screaming, you know, hardcore punk. It was more like um, more like that kind of thing, like ragged rock and roll gone over the edge, you know, right. Like with punk rock abandoned, heavy, you know? but real and not. Yeah. The, um, I, I grew up outside, came up through high school outside the DC area and a lot of friends who were, you know, hardcore fans and minor threat, Fugazi, black flag. Those were kind of the touchstones for a lot of those guys. And I didn't get that stuff at the time. Um, if somebody had introduced me to New York dolls at that age, I probably would have gone, uh, <laughs> probably yeah. would have been a you know very different uh path you know just yeah something else I, I love those things that you were talking about i mean for me like new york hardcore and places where it starts getting a little more monochromatic like and and vast you know and you really have to be super into it to kind of get into all that like the big touchstones you just mentioned i love them but it wasn't tr it wasn't that true to my nature you know that that the just the anger and nihilistic despair that was at the heart of at least like, you know, anger at the heart of minor threat and, you know, and that kind of nihilistic fearsome despair at the heart of black flag, you know, plus anger, yeah. <laughs> all, all those things were not, they still aren't things that, um, you know, I feel like I can uh, rev up 
and then keep up like you know henry rollins is still like man i could still get that anger going i can get all the way up and just feed on it for like a year and make like records and books that are all <laughs> feeding on that anger 24 7 you know and i'm like nah i just can't you know i'm, yeah. I'm, a, for- I'm a forgiver you know <laughs> <laughs> right i could put on those records and i can enjoy them now which i couldn't do you know when i was a young person really i just yeah. didn't didn't connect but now i can listen to them and i can i can hear what's i can hear the qualities you know but uh yeah it didn't quite can the dots weren't there for me because i was listening to you know classic rock or grateful dead or you know yeah. that kind of stuff or the you know the grunge music and the guns and roses and that stuff which is just very different just yeah different, there, different energy there is that you know I mean, since we're, since we're uh, you know, circling around the, 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 the orbit of the dead, you know, I mean, there is also that really interesting uh, connection between like, you know, early hardcore punk and, and the Grateful Dead. Like, I feel like on the outset, the company line was, especially when you're on the outside of it, you know, like, Oh yeah, Black Flag, Minor Threat, all that you know—that hardcore stuff—is the complete opposite of the Grateful Dead's vibe. Is the complete opposite of what they're into, and I don't think as many Deadheads from back then were probably into all that stuff. But I do think a lot of those key bands, you know, like I mean, famously, you know, most of the members of Black Flag totally loved the Grateful Dead, and they found that something about the inspiration of like the like an artistic source in the Grateful Dead style and in their music that they took back that created, you know, their, their own, you know, wellspring through their own language and whatnot. And there, there is a really interesting connection there between, between those two, even though, you know, sometimes the general fan bases don't, um, you know, don't cross over as much, but the, but some of the really important figures on either side actually do. Yeah, sonically, yeah. they're not obvious connections. Greg Yen, he was a big Dead fan. I knew a lot of cats who, who maybe a little bit older than I was, who were, so they were able to go, you know, they were going to hardcore shows in the 80s and stuff, which is just a little before my age. And they were also big Dead fans, which is interesting. But yeah, it just didn't quite pull me. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, punk sp- spirit and attitude in Grateful Dead, even if the music isn't what people would call that, particularly the earlier stuff. You know, Phil Lesh was, um, he was known for wanting to piss off record executives and the dead were adverse to doing anything anybody else's way. And um, they just wanted to make the music and get it done and do it on their own. Um, I think that fits a certain type of ethos that it connects with connects with some punk stuff but yeah yeah there's there's a there's a level of i mean maybe not as much in those guys music although hunter sometimes put it in the lyric but there's that level of you know kind of contrarianism and tricksterism and stuff especially i think in jerry and phil you know you get the feeling from those guys that they um you know especially jerry's just attitude about things you know that that you know sometimes he just had a you know, kind of a devilish, uh, uh, you know, sensibility about him, you know, right. that kind of tickled by not, not quite cruelty, but, um, it, it definitely wasn't just like, 
this is not Santa Claus here. This is a guy that definitely was a, you know, a, a, a damaged dude with kind of a wicked sense of humor and pleasure and, and, and also, yeah, kind of a contrarian, like when it came time to decide, you know, do we allow the bootlegging or do we go out on a, you know, crusade? It's just like, fuck it. Yeah. You know, I mean, and that's kind of like, you know, kind of it's pretty punk really for that era because a lot of the labels and bands probably be saying, well, you know, have some, you know, accountant show me how much money we're losing in record sales here. Let's make a informed decision. And maybe they, they kind of that and they're like, you know what, there just is no way to contain it. Who gives a fuck? You know, I'm right. not going to. Uh, you know, Jerry famously said, you know, when I, once I'm done, once I played it, I'm done with it. And, um, you know, a lot of artists, contemporaries of theirs were very aggressively anti-bootleg and whatnot. And um, it didn't really work, you know, uh, other than maybe it's limited the circulation of their music. So, you know, we don't have quite, quite the catalog of Crosby, Stills, and Nash tapes or whatever, you know, from that era. And that's maybe that's a shame. But uh, so let's circle back a little bit, though. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk more about your stuff. So you, I mean, you, I, I wrote down this note, uh, purveyor of heavy music. So after going back and reviewing some of your groups, you've been in, uh, you were in Comets on Fire, um, which is, I, I don't think I'm I'm qualified to properly describe it and describing music iffy anyways, but you know, a really great group, uh, guitar heavy. Uh, one of the, the notes, I saw several places people like to refer to the Echoplex as being a an in, practically an instrument in that group, um, which amuses me as a, as a textual item. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was, it was beyond an instrument. I mean, it was the, the instrument in the group, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, you've heard, you've heard drums and guitars before in a rock band, but you've, you've never heard the Echoplex use, Echoplex use quite like this, you know? So. Right. Uh, and even on the vocals and stuff, I, I was listening to um, Blue Cathedral. Uh, I, I mentioned to my friend Andy, hi Andy, uh, that uh, I was going to be talking to you today, and he was like, "Oh, he was in, he was in uh, Comets on Fire," and you know, I, I really love Blue Cathedral. And I was like, "I just listened to that today," and uh, so he was very excited, and so so was I to listen to that track or listen to that album, and uh, like the closing track on that Blue Tomb, which is kind of goes it's a nice long tune i like long songs because i'm a deadhead um and just the way the uh the vocals echo out into space on the end there um there was a there's a quote i saw somewhere that was kind of um it was poorly attributed uh that suggested that you um didn't really know or track the lyrics after you had recorded them with that group is that is that a thing were you or it, did somebody make that up and put it down somewhere? What what, what was it that I what did I I tracked the the like lyrics? you uh, after recording the vocals uh, for the records you didn't like know what the lyrics were later. It it, it probably is that that we, you know, I think it, it's twofold that in in that group we would often write instrumentally and rehearse instrumentally and then we'd record the record, and then I'd take those almost you know the final tracks write the lyrics and vocals to it then, you know? And um, and it is also true that we got together to do some final ATP shows a few years ago after, you know, many years off. Yeah, I couldn't figure out what the lyrics were anymore. <laughs> Luckily I found a few old lyric sheets, but some of it was just like lost to the wind. You know, I was like, I, I don't know and, and we'll never. 
<laughs> you know, some of the um, yeah, some of the the recordings you've you know manipulated enough with echoes and other sounds. I can hear how that could be a challenge to go back and address them. I certainly couldn't say that I was a hundred percent certain what I was hearing um, <laughs> lyrically what? on some of the record stuff, but. But it all sounded good. Like, it, you know, it all had the complete sound of a song and it probably meant something at the time. That's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. Some, some. I mean, the Echoplex, the, the vocals are running through the Echoplex. So the, the thing about the Echoplex in, in the original ideas, it's it's a tape machine with a record head and a playback head that's movable. So, so my vocals would go in raw as they as they are in the room. And they'd hit that record head and then come back out the playhead that Noel was manipulating with like volume with moving the playhead around from left to right to make it go faster, slower. And then you can do feedback things to make it the echo, you know, double up on itself and do different things. And it was just such a completely maniacal sound. And at the time that we were experimenting with that being one of the centerpieces of the group, I think the thing as a, as a writer, as a literary person that I really gravitated towards in the idea of deconstructing and sort of like sending narrative back out in, in a shattered form, in a, in a, in a, in an unconstructed form, deconstructed and then not necessarily re, you know, um, it just, it, that to me, that was, that was a fascinating idea. And against the odds, it works. Comets on fire has a, narrative it's a postmodern abstract one narrative you know narratively speaking in literary terms compared to the classic narrative of of pop music usually you know where you kind of understand the who what where and when um but we found that this was like you know really hardcore abstract poetry where you don't know the who what where and when anymore in those places but if the form is beautiful enough and the intention is you know, fearsome and sound um, artistically, then it resonates. That's what abstract art is, right? That's what Jackson yeah. Pollock, you know, it's like, well, what is it? You know, well, you know, forget about that. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just blowing your mind, you know, and, and it may be a lot more things than just a cow or whatever, just a bowl of fruit, you know, and that's, you know, that, that is basically boils down that. And I think we talked earlier about the, uh, you know, to describe Comet Sound, I think there it, it's sort of like the the idea of Black Flag, the idea of Grateful Dead, <laughs> thrown into a blender with a little 20th classical experimental avant-garde stuff. And yeah. you kind of, you know, at certain moments, you, you could hear the band and go like, wow, these guys are expert musicians, um, you know, performing at such a high level. And the next, you might go like, wow, that's like the way Greg Ginn would do it. Like, doesn't give a fuck, just like, crazy off the rails punk rock you know and that i think you know without us consciously doing that in retrospect um you know there there is some of that you know spirit from both ends that's some of the big touchstone spirit you know even though some of the members might not like either end of that but it is right. sort of what you know it sells itself well i mean as you say it may lack the concrete uh, evidence of what the song is about or what have you, but it, it comes down to a kind of a whole sound that is really very listenable and really good. Um, <laughs> so that's 
kind of cool to hear that that is sort of the intent. Sometimes I feel like there are groups that are um, sloppy because it's their only way. And I don't mean to say Comets on Fire is sloppy. I mean, that's just some groups are. and That's the only way they can do a thing. And you guys, you know, really were pushing yourselves to make kind of a complete vibe works well as a songwriter though it kind of it still it, it gets me to like wait what what is he saying what is it is because i i clutch at those you know concrete ideas i look for them when i listen to a song as somebody who spent too much time listening to dylan and thinking he can understand it or something um so, so uh it take i have to you know get to a moment where i'm where i release that desire and just enjoy it yeah like like but i got like, there quickly like you no know, it's an experience not a you know sit down and let me tell you a story eye to eye right. and 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 you know helen rain is more more of that you know allowing that i wanted a dynamic when for, for when i went to another group i wasn't like cool that's that's what i like i'll keep doing you know i was like that's i've got that i i, I like to feel and make dynamic in music from group to group and go down different paths and stuff. So I was like, yeah, this, this one is more about melody, not, not deconstructed, shattered melody. And it's enough all put into a blender. This one is about, you know, seventies AM rock and literary storytelling and, and um, you know, narratives and music are often still fairly abstract, but you can yeah. understand, understand the words, write it down and make your own, you know, meaning at least not just your experience, you know? Yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about Hal and Rain. I mean, so that came up, you know, in the early part of this century, you've been working this project for a little while. Uh, you've had a number of different band members. Um, I know you told Nick on, uh, his radio show that it's always a band, even though it may change players at times, you, you try to put together a sound with the players that you have. Is that, uh, am I paraphrasing that correctly? Yeah. I mean, basically the idea was, you know, I'd been in bands long enough to know by the time I put Holland Rain together that one of the things that I found irksome about bands was, or being in a band was that, you know, it's, it's multiple human beings. And we know that even just two human beings trying to create a relationship is really hard. You know, marriages don't last of the time. It's very difficult. You get three or four, either things are going too well or they're not going well enough. Either way, it all puts stress on people. Everybody's got ideas, power struggles, um, stresses in their own lives. And groups can break up and dysfunction and go go wrong in a in a heartbeat i mean something i learned early on even in my high school bands was that you can think this band's on top of the world about to do the most amazing stuff if that's true record today because tonight you know someone may walk in there and say i quit or the band's over or whatever the deal is you know you just you never know everything's everything's crazy it's always in flux you know um and so traditionally when that would happen in a band um the band breaks up and it's over and all that work it may have been now it's good for the history books and for little else you know um and i thought you know what if i put together a group that 
whose membership could be elastic enough that, um, you know, each group of people that was in that, that formed the band for any given record or period of time, you know, they, they, it's their form of expression. It's our language as a group together, as a band together that, um, will create the sound of the music and the vibe of the band. And I'll, I will carry on the, you know, sort of the, the, the spirit care, caretake the spiritual center and the, and the central spirit of the group and, and, you know, be the, the kind of cornerstone songwriter. And that, you know, that will be enough that that's, that those are bones enough in the center of this thing and different groups can come along. I mean, you know, Fleetwood Mac did this successfully over and right. over where you have these different incarnations of groups. Um, I mean, there's tons of other groups that have done it and it, it just was an interesting different way of doing it. You know, sometimes you find that it, you know, it can take a lot more money. Um, you know, it can take a lot more travel, you know, because often now and for the last, you know, 10 years or so, probably my groups have been in Los Angeles. So I commute there for practice and for tour start and different things. So I know it's created a very interesting way of doing things. And I feel like I've come to the point it's allowed the group not to be destroyed when one member that I relied on, sometimes it might be my musical writing partner that for the last five years I've been separable with, you know, um, that they leave and then it's not just like it's over. It's like, okay, this, this is an interesting challenge and I, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next, you know, when we get some new, get, you know, get a new group together and, and it's it's a you know regenerates the group artistically too so i don't have a lot of moments where i go well i've been writing for this group for 15 years what do i write now because in a lot of ways with each regenerated group it's a whole new set of inspirations a whole new set of sounds you know and and i'm inspired to do new things and see how they react to new and old things that i've written and so far it's been a great way to keep um me from you know, getting to that point too, where you go like, okay, you know, 15, 20 years of this, uh, I've been doing, you know, writing for this group and I'm starting to have a tough <laughs> figuring out what to write for it. You know, I just don't yeah. have that problem. Yeah. That's, um, I like that as a, uh, so, you know, it's like a, a whole new set of tools in your bag, uh, every now and then. Um, and you just have to figure out how to build something with a different set of tools and, it kind of explains the shifting nature of the records. Of course, artists, all you know, all bands and artists, hopefully, are coming up with different sounds as they move album to album through a career. Um, but yeah, I was listening to uh, Mag Magnificent Fiend earlier today. I was like, this is way more kind of rootsy, folk rocky than you know the the Dharma Wheel which is a little more bombastic and, you know, louder guitars and, uh, but still, you know, has your voice in the center and, uh, great songs. Um, I, I actually think I heard an, a, a sound at the end of, um, what is the track, uh, goodbye Ruby. That's almost sounded like Almond brothers in there. And, uh, which I'll tell you that's high praise, uh, for me. Um, it was just the guitars just kind of flowed against each other in a beautiful way. Great record, by the way. Um, but again, quite different from the new one, which is just uh, 
exploding with a, just a very different energy. I like your uh, reference to like AM rock radio from the 70s. It's a, it's a good touchstone. Um, the Dharma Wheel, the name of the record is um, it's an old Buddhist symbol. I, I trust you know that. So my question is really, are you, uh, are you a practicing Buddhist or is it something you're drawing on or? No, I, I'm not. Uh, it was it was something that I I wanted the I wanted the name of the record, and the you know the, each of the names of the records they kind of have their own idea and resonance to them. Sort of like this is like you know a novel, uh, like a novelistic approach, right? You know, if you look at um, you know Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow, you know the the name of the book holds so much resonance and power and such it's such a portal into the this mysterious universe it really when you set that book down in front of you i mean the name it just rings like a you know it's just calling and when you go inside that book it's like a giant world-sized gate that's behind you and you're in there you know, yeah trying to out what on earth is going on you know with all of your intellectual and you know critical artistically critical might you try to exist in there and um so I, I i like the names of the albums to be able to try to do something like that you know to have that kind of resonance and weight and not just be like um you know you know volume four or whatever you know that that it's kind of like it's just a record get something on there so all the names, you know, are a little abstracted. Like you said, Magnificent Fiend, The Russian Wilds, The Alligator Bride, The Dharma Wheel. And so this was in a long history in Helen Rain of having these sort of literarily enticing and sort of literary portal titles that would allow you to go into this world, you know. And the reason I there were things, you know, without any kind of one pinpoint um you know i i I don't know i like the russian why all those names they they come a little bit from some kind of not meditative place but like a place where i try to think very deeply for for like a really good idea i don't know you always get to the end you're like there's still no record title i'm in deep (laughs) you know um and this thing even more than with songs or anything else, I'm always like, oh man, now it's time for art. Like I still do not have a record title and I never do. And I want it to be better than just like volume seven or whatever. Right. Um, and so I try to just start looking into the sort of the like exploding black back there in the back of my mind, you know, and try to find things. And this one kind of came out and it, it was, it worked well with the concept of the portal in this sort of Robert Heinlein style way of absorbing religious terminology and religious resonance and religious storytelling from our side of the dimension and then placing it slightly abstracted, but also resonating still, you know, in a true way on in inside this, this fantastical in his situation, his sci-fi you know, narrative. And in mine, it's, it's inside the, the, the world of the Dharma wheel inside this record. And, um, you know, I like that. And the idea of this cosmic 
you know, spiritual truth and path. And, you know, it was all that stuff was resonating a little bit for me or a lot um, at the time that we finished this record and we're, you know, not too far from the Capitol riots and everything that was going on in, in the United States and worldwide um, with issues of, of, you know, of, of individuality and truth and different kinds of truths and facts being up for grabs. And so, you know, I just thought this, this title, it's already something I can't quite untangle, obviously, and trying to tell you about it, yeah. it I'm all these different directions. And for me, that's the one that's perfect. I don't want it to be untangled. You know, I want you to be able to try to untangle it and have four different things that you think it might be about, including resonating some memory of, you know, your grandmother doing this or that, you know, everybody, it can, it can be broad enough and elastic enough that um, people can connect and, and, you know, get a little entangled in the, in the, in the web, you know? Yeah. It pulls you in. I've got a few ideas. I won't, I won't bother you with them. Um, <laughs> but uh, this was uh, supposed to be a double album initially. I understand you, you went in, you started a lot of songs before COVID and things and uh, pared it down. Uh, is yeah. the rest of the material something you think you may revisit? Pull back. Out? I, I think so. It's, it's, um, some of it, some of it's completely done. Even there's another song that Scarlett Rivera even played violin on, with just like ripping violin solos. It's like, you know, the song is arranged with the isis chords. You know what I mean? So it's just like, oh, oh, I recognize these chords. I'm like, yep, I'll bet you do. <laughs> you know, and ripping, ripping ass these solos. You know, and uh, I was like, oh boy, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is good stuff. Um, so yeah, that's gonna, that's gonna get on something, you know? Uh, and I think I, I just divided it, it. We had over two hours of recorded music. We'd been touring a lot. I'd been taking money out of the, the, the bottom of the budget from, from these tours that we kept doing and putting them into recordings. So when we're on the road, when we're home, we'd go straight in the studio and we're just recording all this stuff. And we ended up with this like double or triple album worth of, you know, music that we've been rehearsing and recording. Um, and it takes a lot of money to keep up constant studio time like that. And since we were touring constantly, you could take a little bit of money out of the tour and keep doing it, other incomes and, and make it quite a, a healthy recording budget for a big project like that. Well, COVID hit and stopped that dead in its tracks. No touring, not, you know, most of the money we had left went straight to, you know, whatever, keep put, getting out the next record or something. And um, it just made sense to divide it. And thankfully, there was so much material that even though I had these lofty ideas about it being some triple album with a theme and a prelude at the beginning and a suite at the end and just the most epic monumental triple album you've ever heard, it boiled down beautifully into a 49 minute or whatever it is single album. It still teases a little bit at the edges that it might be part of something bigger, but um, which allows us to put out a second volume and, and for everyone to see or feel that it's a two volume set if they care to, but I think it works, you know, as it is too. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, look forward to hearing that stuff. Uh, well, you went there before I could, uh, Scarlet Vera, uh, for the listeners put on desire, Bob Dylan's desire or, uh, 
something from the Rolling Thunder tour, and you will recognize her violin, and it's on this record. And how did you how did you get her on? How did you come across her? Well, mo- mostly it was to do with that song I was just talking about. Um, you know, before we knew we, you know, have her in to play on it. Uh, the the song had the, the ISIS chords. I mean, they're they're three pretty common chords. <laughs> I yeah. think it's I think it's you know AGD a- a- or something like that. Yeah, I've played it on that before. <laughs> I haven't played it in it, but um, but yeah, yeah. Everybody's riffed these chords before, you know. Um, and the song we'd recorded it for Alligator Bride. I'd had it for quite a while, and it came out quite beautifully as this like country waltz, almost like a Harvest Moon Neil Young kind of thing on Alligator Bride. But the album was getting a little full and I left it off, you know, it just didn't flow with it. So we picked it back up again. And um, and, and I just seen at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, the, the Martin Scorsese Rolling Thunder movie, you know, and the yeah. Castro, these huge old movie palaces, Dylan's face up there with the white paint, you know, streaming down in sweat. And he's, you know, his head's 100 feet big and, you know, like... <laughs> You know, for, for the week after the two weeks after that movie came out, everybody that was in that theater and any other theater at the premiere was just like electrified, you know, by this yeah. rolling thunder footage. So we were in rehearsal and I showed the guys, I said, guys, check this out. You got no, no, nobody saw the film and nobody had. So we I think we probably, you know, put on ISIS and they were all as electrified as I, I was, you know, and I said, look, let's go try that song. It's got the chords. Let's just give it the feel of, of that rolling thunder, just that amphetamineized, you know, sort of like country folk turned up to like electrocution level, you know, and, uh, and we did, and it sounded amazing. <laughs> and so nice. we kept that and we recorded it that way. And it's, you know, it's an, it, you can hear that it's an homage to that type of thing, you know, it still sounds like us, but you could say, okay. And especially then, um, yeah, long story short, at some point I said, well, you know what, it really topped this song off now <laughs> you know, is, um, is if we could get Scarlett Rivera on there. And, and I think Justin, the drummer said, you know, I just was in a club. She still plays around LA. I was in a club the other night and heard her playing. And I, I was in the club before I could see the stage. She was around the corner, but I heard that violin tone and I knew it was her. You know, and then I went around the corner and saw it was her. Wow. And I said, you know, geez, well, you know, he said, well, you know, Justin's wife, Kim, is a, is a publicist. And she, you know, sp- had some drinks with Scarlett afterwards, just out of sort of rubbing elbows. And they were at the bar together and ended up chatting and stuff. This is Justin telling me this. I said, well, hey, can Kim give us Scarlett's number? Can she ask if she'd play? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, usually if I can have a conversation with somebody or get them some music, you know, the, the, the doors cracked open a little bit, you know? Um, and, uh, he, so, so she did, Kim was able to track down her number and I, I did some texting with Scarlett. I sent her some Helen rain music, sent her the tracks that I was hoping she'd play on. And, um, she wrote and said, yeah, I, I you know, I really love this kind of music and it's, it sounds, you know, some of the stuff that you guys are doing right here that I'd play on sounds great. Um, so we, we put it together, she came in and, and, uh, and, uh, just played tremendously and brought a lot of vibe, you know, and some great stories. That's awesome. So you also had Adam McDougall. I think the listeners will know his name from CRB and circles around the sun, big fan yeah. of his work. Uh, you can, it's pretty distinctive. You can really hear when he comes in there on that record. Uh, it's kind of Adam, cool. <laughs> Adam is Adam. Yeah. I didn't yeah. want to 
had him on i mean i especially knew this after the keyboard sessions you know that it just it it's a waste to have him come in and play some tasty keyboard pads and and do that kind of stuff you know you really want quintessential adam you know if you, if you want him coming in on something be like okay that's such a distinct personality and he really um you know really just sounded sounded like a member of the band on the songs that he played on and that's exactly what i wanted you know um you close this record with a 16 minute track which i actually sat um this afternoon with my guitar in my lap i'm a, not a i don't belong in a band like that i'll tell you but um but played along just to, it's a you know one of my focusing tricks is to you know really hear the progression of the song and uh, and the thing, it goes kind of balls out and then it comes to a dead stop. How do you, where do you get the nerve to stop a song completely and start <laughs> again? No, I, I, I don't know how to ask this question. I just like to, had, actually, what I really want to know is I like about, the way you <laughs> about the construction of a, 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 a song of that length. Do you map it out that long or is it i've got this and i've got this let's play and then it kind of grows into the thing how, uh, how does that work with your group well to, to answer the first question about nerve i think you put it the right way it does take some nerve because it doesn't like you think that that's just going to be a really dynamic thing and not a big deal it'll just be cool stop and then start again from nothing but when you've been playing loud <laughs> It actually creates a lot of problems, <laughs> you know, even in the recording because like the amps are all humming and, right. and it's been so loud and dissonant right before that. You can't really hear what key it, it's in. So you start singing in the wrong key. And then when you play the first guitar chord, you realize like I'm not right. in, um, you know, and it just it seems like it's easier in a recording studio to stop a big song like that and do something audacious, like try to bring it back up from nothing, you know, real dynamic thing on stage. It's, it's quite terrifying, you know, because you've been standing on top of a, you know, a volcano that's exploding. And now you're just a single person dangling with nothing beneath you, you know, that thing right in the air. So, um, so I don't know, I'm still coming to grips with the fact that I did it and that I have to do it on stage next week and <laughs> <laughs> whatnot. Yeah. But, uh, but it's fun. I mean, those are the kinds of, you know, if you do things that are nervy and audacious, sometimes people will call you out as a fool for having done them, you know, and sometimes that might be true. You know, this is another dead let them let them call, you know, because you take the risks and you fail and you succeed sometimes in this in almost the same heartbeat. There's another grateful dead lesson. Right. It's like yeah. that the finest success and musical moment and the sloppiest failure may be moments apart for them because they maintain risk. They maintain nerve, you know, and, 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 um, you gotta, you gotta fucking fall on your face a lot for that. So, so I don't know that part, I guess is a part, another one of these built in to test me even on days when I don't feel like being tested, but I, I shall do it. But, um, as to how it was arranged, I tend to obviously like to arrange things in a little bit of a labyrinthine fashion, not in a totally classic pop arrangement fashion, you know? 
Um, maybe things often are a little bit more arranged like classical music that way, where it's like, what's this little thing? It's not just like verse, chorus, verse. Everybody knows the middle eight comes next, you know, and then the bridge comes here and then here's the final chorus. It's like, oh, there's got to be this little thing and that little thing. And um, I'm sure it probably has driven some of my band members crazy. Some of them find it intriguing. And I think for the most part, this group that did the Dharma wheel, they, they all liked either from working with me for quite a while or it being their natural place to go. We all liked doing that. We all liked arranging things with a classical sensibility like that, where um, it doesn't have to be a repeating part. The verse doesn't have to repeat in the same time. You know, it's, it's that there can be three little mini bridges and, and macro bridges and micro bridges and different things going on that get you from one part to the next. And it's not even the one part to the next that would traditionally happen after each other in a pop song. You know, I mean, don't right. let the tears three different intro sections before the verse vocal verse starts, you know? Um, so either through uh, originally tolerance and then learning to love it or initially just loving to do it, you know, the band was on board for that. I tried with this record. I told myself that I wouldn't force um, the outcome of the album, that what I really wanted to do was bring in, rudimentary songs for the band to choose and then for us to build an arrangement from that which we loved out of the songs that i'd brought in and for this band to really make it their own and for me not to um say guys okay everybody wants to do that but i know that's wrong we have to do this you know and and try to really allow it to be the full expression you know arrangement wise vibe wise spirit wise um performance wise of of what the group mentality was so um i i do think that that's just an expression of of uh, of where we were at you know the four of us that it it seemed as natural to let that song be six and a half minutes and to let it have 125 different parts in it um as as it did to you know to to write you know, a, a five and a half minute song on the alligator bride and, and let that just be that. I mean, sometimes, you know, you're like, yeah, this song's got three parts. Some songs have only one part, just one progression the whole way through, you know, and you can call it a verse chorus, whatever. So it makes it two parts, but, and some songs have 135 parts and, and it, there's no, you know, you don't really set out to do one or the other. You just try to let it become what it wants to be. You know? Yeah, I actually, um, was it last last night, tweeted something. I, I was working on a song yesterday and tweeted a question to folks who were following me last night about um, does a song have to have a bridge or a chorus? I mean, I know the answer, and the answer is if the song wants one, it gets one. But um, yeah. but <laughs> I, I I did I kind of wanted just to see what people say. Yeah, well, there's that. So this one, I, I just, this one, I don't know that it has one. Um, so I just kind of, I keep playing it and maybe one will pop up. It's it's still very new. But uh, yeah, sometimes it's just, song tells you what it, what it needs. And it's good to have a, that you have a band that can help you discover what that is. That's pretty cool. Don't want to ask about Hair and Oblivion. Revisited that the other day and... 
beautiful album. Great group, Meg Baird and Noel, who was in Comets on Fire. And I mean, I'm saying this for the audience, not for you, of course. But um, I, I spoke to a friend said, hey, I'm, I'm talking to Ethan Miller. Do you have any anything I should ask him? He's like, yeah, ask if Heron Oblivion's ever going to do anything again. Um, <laughs> so is Heron Oblivion ever going to do anything again? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, because, I mean, I just, I just, I shouldn't say that, that I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I do. It does. It is that I don't know. But during COVID, um, we just, we were estranged as a band. You know, we lost our band space because of our jam space because of things one of our members is living down in los angeles area and and um you know we're still all in communication um it, but it, it it just that that as a band as a functioning band you know with rehearsals or here's what we do next or any stuff we just we're totally estranged um because of you know geography, losing our rehearsal space, not having any gigs, um, and the album was pretty much finished. Just needed a couple of little things to do. Um, so we, you know, that just got kind of put on ice. So um, I'm guessing we probably will, but I I don't really know what's going. On. I think we just all you know dove into other things in life and. Um, and and just you know did that stuff and when when covid clears that group will be easier to you know manage those kinds of questions and, and get a path forward fair enough yeah. i mean the future is a, a long time so thank you for indulging the question um it, it is a great project actually i did oh, have perfect. another question about that because you know with um like meg's uh you know from espers and that there was uh you know there's a like a direct line to the kind of uk psych folk stuff something i'm a big proponent fan of is that is that something that you've spent some time in uh as a listener oh yeah yeah okay. of course i mean i mean uh one would hope I mean. yeah yeah <laughs> in, you know in in the early comments days that stuff uh, like Fairport Convention and Pentangle and, and some of the more cult underground stuff like Comus yeah. and, you know, Fresh Maggots and the different, the different, like really deep, obscure UK psych, uh, folk psych and stuff and like witchy psych and different things like um, those things were all on our radar. Well, it, mostly because when, when Ben Chasney from Six Organs was getting into the group, I mean, he, he was one of the American Kings of that kind of stuff, you know? Right. And, um, or maybe he was a Prince back then that now he's a King. I don't know, but <laughs> I don't know what the exact trajectory is, but you know, I don't know but the heraldry. He um, had the goods one way or the other in 1996, he knew who Comus was and had the record or whatever. And you could, nice. you know, and not many people did, you know, at least not many people I knew. So, um, you know, I think he he brought a lot of that interest into the group, even if he was already probably sort of moving on to other things. You know, it was the place from one of the wellsprings that Six Organs came from. And then our East Coast friends like Meg, um, you know, she and I have been friends since whatever, 2002 or whenever we first met, you know, Espers and Comets at a... I don't know, playing in Philadelphia together or just hanging out in Philly going through or ATP gigs. I can't remember where it was, but, um, you know, having those groups 
especially espers you know be be friends and compatriots of our group um they uh yeah you can't help but you know dive into some of the surrounding waters to, to and get a little educated about what's going on there obviously they were deeper you know, had a deeper knowledge of all that stuff and and still do it, it, it happened again once i got into hair and oblivion even though you know meg and charlie and i and noel you know would hang out a lot before but obviously once you're living in a van together and stuff you know or you know when she was bringing that kind of vocal style and and everybody and and, and especially charlie and noel wanted to bring some of those elements in with the with the guitars and the, and the arrangement writing and stuff you know you go back through an, another little crash course in in uh you know uk folk rock and and electric folk and stuff and and it's it's cool it's fascinating it's not my area of expertise but i i love it i've been cultivating that area for a few years now like i was barely a dabbler before but i've been cultivating an interest in that stuff for a while and it's been super rewarding and it's it's a bottomless well almost it is a it's a bottomless well yeah and justin smith the the helen rain drummer is also totally bananas about that like full i mean he goes even potentially further than anybody else we've mentioned just in the like this is the 21st steel eye span record from 1987 it's like maybe it's not the best but the drummer on it is amazing listen to the beat you know that kind of stuff he he can go really you know he's like the 78 collector of of uk so where you're like oh wow okay so you're you're in this one just for the drummer and he's playing jigs all the time but that's (laughs) so i also love getting schooled by um Justin, when he thinks we can take it, he'll he'll go like super esoteric and deep on some like eighties, you know, UK old rock and stuff, you know, in the car in the van. Yeah. So a lot of us bail out by the eighties, but um, but there's stuff, there's good stuff. So we should spend a minute. If you've got a few more minutes, we should. I should ask you more directly about Grateful Dead. Where where did you where did you get turned on to Grateful Dead? Um, I think probably it. Well, I mean, at first, the, the, the whole deal was around, I grew up in Humboldt County, Arcade, at Eureka, California, spent a lot of time in Arcata, California. In, in the 80s, you know, just like to young kids, you know, the, the hippie scene, it had not come back into fashion. It was not, you know, it was just, an, it seemed like from the outside, especially from kind of a young, kind of growing up on the punk rock scene and stuff, going into music that way, like a leftover burnout thing from, the, the late 60s era like nobody got over it they're just burnouts they're out the, you know god knows what's going on here and the, and it was there was so much of it up here you know it really was a the, the hippie culture was still going strong now of course i look back and i'm like that's amazing you know but when you're yeah. i don't know a young kid and you want to just like whatever go to the mall and get some nikes or something or see see something other than you some, something that's not small town and you are small town you know um, so I, I never really got into the dead through as much as I was completely immersed, you know, in it around me in the county um, until I moved to Santa Cruz and got into Comets on Fire and the drummer Utrio, who was also from Humboldt, who also probably had kind of similar feelings as I did when he was in Humboldt. But then, you know, you move to the outside world, you get a different perspective, you get a, a bigger perspective on what this thing means on a large scale, not just you know, what it means, you know, from like that guy across the street that keeps bugging you for spare change or whatever. But, um, 
and I really got taken by it. You know, he he brought it into the van. He brought it into the the home. You know, we're listening to it, and um, you know, I I love that stuff. I think one of the earliest things he turned me on to. I mean, uh, we kind of everybody's getting Anthem of the Sun in that first album if you're into psych rock and punk rock. But when he played uh, American Beauty, you know, I think that, that was when I was just like, man, this album's so deeply resonant you know on a songwriting level and it really inspired me for like the first talent rain record that idea of like a band that could really light it up you know and be heavy and huge coming down to this really personal pseudo acoustic you know kind of just like stripped down level and those beautiful harmonies but it's still very real sounding and that was kind of um, probably like a lot of people that fall in love with a Grateful Dead album. That one is an easy one to, to fall oh, yeah. for, you know? I mean, there's a reason why, I mean, I don't know if it's their biggest seller, but it's certainly their, like, the one that connects with the most people. Because, I mean, that's what that whole record is about, really. It's about connecting. Um, yeah, yeah. And it feels like they, they just, in so many instances wanted to do something great in the studio we're like this is it this is a neat place and and just you know that they just so much you know they lived in that place on stage they lived where mm -hmm. risk and success and failure and all that you know just flying by the seat of your pants and everyone going in different directions and the the art of playing for a cold scientific machine you know to capture your spirit you know that just doesn't sound like something the grateful dead would be good at and frankly they weren't masters of it you know uh, yeah the seat of their pants is where they lived most of the time it, oh it's only like the the two of their best studio records i think inarguably working man's and american beauty were both recorded in very compressed periods of time uh unlike the other records where they just kind of they had the time, they had the resources, they had the blow, they had the whatever they needed, and it didn't always add up. Um, although I enjoy the records, uh, varying oh, levels. Oh, I, I, I love them. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. Don't get me yeah, wrong. Yeah. But, you know, when it comes time for, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash to make a record, you know, they know how to, it does not sound like their spirit was lost on the machine. You know what I mean? Yeah. When it comes to for Jimi Hendrix to make Electric Ladyland or Access Bold as Love, this is not, this sounds like a person that that part of it, that missing ingredient where it's like, man, but I'm performing for a, a cold robot. You know, this isn't, I'm not having a spiritual exchange with another human being like music's supposed to be. Some people are just like, that's not my mind. I'm so thrilled and intrigued by the experience. And they put something down that's so, um, you know, everlasting that it just really can't be topped. You know what I mean? Like Crosby yeah. still probably could not top, you know, you know, live or somewhere else. It's just like they hit the goddamn quintessential expression of sweet Judy blue eyes right there on the tape. Supposedly it wasn't even, the, you know, the technically the best take or whatever, but they, they, they captured spirit, you know, and, and, um, I don't know. Yeah. The, for the dead, I just think, I mean, some, you know, like Terrapin Station and Blues for Alla and some of that 70s stuff, like even Oaksa Moksoa and stuff, they're, they're great. 
records to listen to. It's just that you know that there are more fundamental and transcendent performances of the material on there out there. Probably like, you know, six days later, they went and did an even better performance, you know. Um, And somehow that to me is what eluded them most of the time. But I guarantee you that there isn't a better box of rain out there than American Beauty. I mean, that, you know, that song's they captured, they captured it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I might say RFK 73 is pretty good, but uh, yeah, it's still not the same. You know? <laughs> it feels maybe in, in vocal, opinion, vocal when, take isn't idea. probably quite as good, um, and the harmonies don't quite hit the same way. Uh, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you. I'm just I'm making jokes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that that is that is i mean it is the most dangerous thing in 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 the world to say in any uh dead conversation with with deadheads or anybody with dead aficionado like i guarantee you there isn't a better version than this one and they're like well Well. um, yeah september 3rd 1973 at the uh you know yeah right this guy's obviously doesn't know what he's talking about so <laughs> no fuck that i i stand by that box of rain you, you should know, all the ver- you should all it's the, killer all the versions that i hear it's just like there's something settled there's something settled down you know in it that's just it's really gorgeous and 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 the, the feel and swing of it and whenever i hear it live um it's it's like the 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 centeredness of the song is a little forgotten. You know, the chords are remembered, the vocals are remembered, and maybe even the emotion is remembered. But there's this invisible little center of the way that it moves and stuff, the way that it just sounds like liquid flowing, you know, down maple leaves the whole way on this like sad fall day, you know? And and something about that little crystalline center is is always off, you know? Have you ever played that song? That song just, it has one of those progressions that doesn't, you know, quite repeat itself and never stops i don't uh, it's I it's beautiful that. and it's hard to land that center that you're talking about um you know only if i sit and play it for a little while over a few days can i kind of draw close to it i don't hit it i'm just not that i don't know i'm not phil esh or jerry go figure but um I get what you're saying. They don't quite hit it in the, a lot of the live versions. Uh, Jerry's solo on that RFK version, though, folks, is really good. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to go check it out. I'll have to go six ten seventy three. You know what? I will. I will put that. I've played it before on the show, but I'll put that after the after our interview after we play <laughs> something from the record. Um, and uh, I think this maybe we'll we'll leave off here. Uh, do you have a a cut that we should play from the album for everybody? Do you? What's that? I I probably could look up what the single is, but I'm the the, uh, the latest single is "Don't Let the Tears." That might be a phone because it's very Adam McDougall centric. I know I know yeah. we got on the show, and from the get go, you can hear him just you know just re recentering the song around himself in the very best way. You know, I love I love it. All right, I'm going to put that in my notes. Uh, we'll play that for everybody at right after the conversation. And, uh, you know, we'll get into some Grateful Dead. I'll tell everybody where they can find the album. It's out on October 8th. And it's great, man. Uh, congratulations. Uh, I'm really excited for everybody to hear this thing. Um, I'm also looking forward to whenever I may get to see you guys play sometime. So 
uh, here's hoping, here's hoping. Awesome, man. Thanks. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. i
second century. Don't Let the Tears from Hal and Rain's upcoming album, The Dharma Wheel. The Dharma Wheel is out this Friday, October 8th. You can find it wherever you get your music, including Bandcamp at howlinrain.bandcamp.com. Naturally, I'll throw the link up on the blog and all that. So, you heard me promise, Ethan, the Box of Rain from RFK Stadium, 61073. I have visited this show a couple of times on the podcast, way back in episode... Number four, I did a mix of stuff from June 73, and back in episode 92, I actually included this very box of rain in the mix, but I'm a man of my word, so that box is part of this mix, but it's the only repeat. We have here mostly tunes from 610, one from 69, also RFK, and you'll, um, you'll also hear something quite familiar in there. I've had a few listeners over the year ask me which road Jimmy is the intro to the show, well, it's this RFK, June 10th, 1973 version. It's one of my favorites, and the whole thing is here for you this week. So when you hear that intro, don't turn off the podcast thinking that it's over. Enjoy the song and the songs that follow. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this, and thank you again so much for listening and sticking with me all this time. There's more to come, so keep an eye on my Twitter at BrokedownPod. Until then, be well.
felt you sat up there. The colors were still warm where you've been laid.
reason Well, it's just your mind I don't trust nothing But I know it come out right And once again now Well, I hope you understand When it's done it over When it's just a man Playing Playing in the band Daybreak Daybreak on the